The scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you on this second week of Advent. My name is Janet, and I'd especially just like to welcome those of you who may be visiting. I know the worship team did that already, but if you're new or if you were maybe uh, just exploring faith this Christmas season, welcome. We're so glad you're here. As you see, we're in this second week of Advent, of course, and the um, portion of scripture we're looking at is the Christmas story in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first gospel in our New Testament. And last week, Pastor Matthew um, preached in Matthew 1, the beginning of the chapter, and this week it's chapter 2. But those of you who are observant, and I'm sure that includes all of you, <laughs> will note that we skipped, did, did we skip the second half of chapter 1? What about Mary and Joseph? <laughs> well, actually, Pastor Matthew is preaching the second half of chapter one at our Aldergrove campus today at 11 o'clock. And so we are focused here on chapter two and next week we will swap. So Matthew will be here um, preaching in the second half of chapter one. So just so you know, we, we know that it's out of order, but we're okay with that. So I also wanna just encourage you, um, we do, a, you may have heard and when you were just coming in, uh, as a church we do this great initiative called um, Advent Blessing, which is a way of sharing generous love, one of our values as a church. And by, we do that by um, just being generous with those who may be in need, need encouragement, be struggling in the Christmas season. So there are about 25 families that are um, available for sponsorship. And if you would like to be part of that and, and uh, as maybe as a life group or as an extended family, take a family that could use some encouragement this season. I encourage you to visit the table in the foyer. We have a number of families. Some of them are uh, from our 
the Kwantlen Nation here in Fort Langley. And we just love actually just sharing the joy, <laughs> being a church of generous love. So make sure you check that out and um, see how you can be part of that. Well, today's title for our message is, Where is this King? It was the question the Magi had. Where is this one who's been born King of the Jews? And I, I don't know if you've thought about it, but I think maybe more than any other part of the Christmas story, the story of the Magi is one that's kind of uh, interesting, unusual. It's, um, there's a lot of unfamiliar parts in it, right? Like, who were these wise men, and why, why did they, what, what about this star? Why did they embark on this um, journey to find the Christ child? Most of all, why did Matthew include this in his Christmas telling of the birth of Christ? Like, the gospel writers had lots of material to draw on as they were uh, putting together their gospel accounts, but Matthew chose this one. How does it reveal Jesus as Messiah to us, and what can we learn today? Well, let's pray and ask God to show us and to teach us this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. And we pray that this morning we would, we would hear your voice. We would see you revealed in scripture, in this story, God, and it would encourage us, it would encourage us to know that when we seek you with all of our heart, you can be found. Thank you, God, and we pray that this morning would be one of joy as we discover you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as last week, um, when uh, Pastor Matthew talked about the genealogy of Jesus, and uh, just unpacked the first half of that chapter, we saw that, you know, it's historically documented, right? The generations of Jesus leading up to his birth. And in the same way, um, this story that we uh, heard read this morning already, it, it documents real times, real locations, real people. See, already by the second century, this event, which is known as Epiphany, was celebrated far before the Feast of Christmas ever came about, Epiphany was a, was a celebrated and a real part of, of the experience of the early Christian church. Now, Epiphany describes a moment, right, when the light bulb goes on. It's this aha moment when you maybe gain some understanding that you didn't have before. We'll see in today's story that these pilgrims who traveled from a far eastern land are determined to follow a star and find a baby king. And they experience an epiphany. They were filled with joy. They set out with one purpose. Where is this king? Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? A verse that we'll be looking at this morning as we travel through this passage is Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And there's two things I believe we can learn from this, from these magi. They were seekers. They sought the truth. They honest, honestly believed that God's amazing truth was being revealed to them in two ways. First, through creation, through the heavens, and then through scripture, through prophecy. 
And then they fall to their knees. They recognize the Messiah, this baby king, as the one who should sit on the throne. So this story is really a quest for truth, and we'll travel with the Magi this morning, metaphorically speaking. And where does this search for truth lead us? Is it possible to know? How can this search that you or I are on lead us to Jesus? So who are these travelers? Well, they are not kings, but they had great influence with royalty and with courts in the day. They were most likely from Persia, uh, modern-day Iraq, Iran, and most probably Babylon. They were revered as ones who could read and understand the signs of the times. They had great knowledge of science and astronomy. Um, they're referred to in the Greek and maybe in your Bible text that you have as magi, sometimes called wise men. And from magi, we get the word magician, but it would be a misunderstanding to think of them in that way. See, in a time without street lights or bright cities or artificial light, if we can imagine that, the night sky was a huge part of the experience, the existence of the ancient world. Everything was connected. And so what was happening on earth would have been reflected in the heavens. The stars and the planets gave meaning. So the Magi noticed this strange phenomena in the night sky. And it's maybe connected to something natural, a comet, maybe a supernova, maybe Jupiter and Saturn aligning, as astronomers know they did at that time period when Christ was born. But it sets them on a pursuit of a newborn king. Now, ancient writings at this time also uh, record that there was something of an expectation that a world ruler would come from Judea. So this is the context of the Magi. Numbers 24:17 record, more than 14 years prior to the birth of Christ, a star will march forth out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. But consider the, this, the Magi didn't know everything they needed to know to find this king. But they took seriously what they did know. God was revealing himself in creation, in the heavens, in a way that they could understand and respond to. And these influential, these wealthy magi embarked on a journey of more than a thousand miles. It would have taken weeks, it would have taken months. They weren't content to sit back in Babylon in their luxury and admire the star from afar and to imagine all the reasons why it couldn't be true. They saw the star and they chose to steadily follow it. We all follow something in life, something, someone. What's guiding you? Well, a few years ago, a number of years ago now, when our, some of our kids lived in Portland, we would make these road trips, you know, down, down south to Portland to visit them. And one time we left in the evening, so it was dark and raining, and Rob was asleep, and I was driving, and to stay awake, I was listening to a, um, some, a story on maybe National Public Radio or This American Life or something. And I had, I didn't want to wake him up, so I had earphones in. Are you even allowed to drive with earphones? I don't know. Don't tell me if I don't know that. But, um, but it was really dark and rainy, and we were going through Seattle. And, uh, you know, I was in one of those express lanes and the freeways going. And I, I could barely see the road, so I just determined, I'm just going to follow the car ahead of me. Like, 
those tail lights are nice and bright. I'm going to keep my distance, but that I'm, I was determined I'm going to follow that car so I don't, you know, run off the road. And um, not that I would ever run off the road, but I was determined to follow. So, but the thing that, that distracted me was the story I was hearing got so intense that it was about some deep sea divers who were <laughs> on the last of their little bit of oxygen tank in an underwater cave. And I was like, so intent on this story and listening and following the taillights ahead of me. And quite a long time later, Rob sits up and says, where are we? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm following him. And instead of going south to Portland, we were like off to Wenatchee, east or something. I don't know. But I was following and I became disoriented, and I was lost, and I didn't know where I was going. And I wonder, I just wonder, when those magi set off on their desert experience, if they had some of those same times of disorientation. Did we really see a star? What if God doesn't show up here? What if this is in vain? Like there were cold nights and hot days and dangers in the journey ahead. And what if this doesn't work out? How did they hang on to the truth that they knew? Well, Oswald Chambers once said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. Well, Oswald must know that women think too, but that's so true. And it's not uncommon for us to go through seasons of doubt and desert times, is it? I can remember, I was a teenager in the 1970s, and I was pretty wobbly in my understanding of faith and Christianity. But one of my friends became a, a Buddhist, and I had no certainty about how to understand or talk about or dialogue with him about the claims of Christ. It was really troubling for me at the time. But listen, doubt is not the same as unbelief. And thankfully, we have the Apostle Thomas as proof of that. And Jesus invites Thomas to believe by touching the very wounds of his crucifixion. Jesus also tells the doubting Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. He doubts and questioning and critiquing have been part of the following Jesus for 2,000 years. And perhaps the Magi were as well, leaving behind parts of the tradition that they would have been familiar with. Maybe they had a longing for something more, and they were on a search. Do we have space for people who are on a journey, who are honestly questioning, especially young people who need to differentiate, who need to test, who need to ask questions? But clearly in our day and time, doubt and deconstruction leading to unbelief are a real possibility and one that's becoming increasingly common. It's almost an experiential you know, rite of passage leading to this sense of liberation by tearing down one's belief system and then feeling as if one has arrived, content to remain in doubt and unbelief. Believe me, I know there are sometimes very good reasons to deconstruct certain beliefs, especially when not everything we grew up believing about Christianity accurate, accurately reflects the way of Jesus. 
Many of you know that I grew up in an extremely conservative, fundamental, right-wing version of traditional Christianity in America. There were American flags at the front of the church. Only one political party was Christian. At church, all the male elders and leaders would file in the front doors and sit in their black suits in the front row. I have no idea where their wives and children were. There was a woman at the piano and the women were with the kids in the basement. But, but there was so much about what I grew up with that was confusing to me. I was frightened into faith as a child by a terrifying film called Thief in the Night, all about the sudden rapture and the mark of the beast. And there were rules about everything, from movies to makeup to dancing. And a teenage girl who was pregnant was shamed, and a woman who worked outside the home was suspect. But most confusing to me was this hypocrisy that I experienced firsthand between all that religiosity and really a troubling lack of genuine Christian faith, so-called Christian faith in my home. See, I could be exhibit A, like the poster child, for a person who has every reason to deconstruct their faith and walk away from Christianity. I experienced what many today are deconstructing from at a distance. Thankfully, I think, it was 1980, I didn't have the internet to run to, to immerse myself in podcasts and videos of others in doubt and deconstruction. So what helped me through my crisis of faith and slow reconstruction? Well, by God's grace and a miracle, it was only a miracle, I found myself at a small Bible school in Texas, of all places, and I was surrounded by a community of Christ followers who genuinely and patiently walked with me. I saw their faith, it looked real, it was something that I wanted for myself. I began reading biographies, authors, different worldviews, Francis Schaeffer, Philip Yancey, C.S. Lewis. I'm really dating myself, I know, but these were really influential in my journey. I think most surprisingly, I didn't give up on church. I knew that I needed the Christian community, even though it wasn't all perfect, or all churches aren't the same. But I needed their wisdom. And it took me a lot longer, though, to actually love the Bible um, and believe that it was true and to want to read it. Growing up, its words had been, I think, misused in some ways. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child, women remain silent, judgment, and... All these kind of things were mixed up in, in my growing up understanding of what it meant to be Christian. So it took me a while to actually love God's word. There's still some major wrestling points along the way and disillusionment. My spiritual mentor, like the one who like, took me as a mixed up 18 year old and walked with me in my faith formation into my 20s, pointed me to Jesus, prayed with me, discipled me, she walked out on her husband and her marriage to pursue a lesbian relationship, and I have not heard from her since. I looked up to her. I loved her a lot. It left me sad and confused and disappointed. How could she as a Christ follower come to that decision, and what did the Bible say? Again, I had to take my questions to scripture, to the church community, to seek Jesus, to choose and follow his way, even when I had questions, even when I, you know, don't fully understand. 
See, deconstruction often leaves little room for one to walk by faith, to say, I trust, and I can even be sure of what I cannot see and don't fully know. But our current culture would think that that kind of faith is, is blind, it's maybe suspect, it's simple. It's far more accepted to be open and nuanced and fluid and uncertain in our culture today, especially when it comes to religious belief, and especially when that kind of an open posture is set against dogmatic, fundamental ideology like I grew up with. So as New Testament scholar John Stackhouse states, instead of arriving at a sound and solid Christianity, shorn of mistaken human traditions, each person devises a consumer product tailored to his or her own preferences. Yet the Magi would have been some of the most educated and respected people in their day. And they set out to verify the truth, to actually investigate with the goal of finding a person as though it was, actually it was actually possible to know. They kept the truth in sight and kept pursuing. They moved forward with the revelation that they had received, and they covered a thousand miles of a desert. We would say this, would we say, would we say that this same pursuit of truth would characterize us? Can we walk through deserts of deconstruction, times of questioning, with Jesus and with others into a deeper, more sure faith? I hope so. When it's easier and more popular to simply suspend belief and not truly investigate, not truly verify the claims of Christianity, the claims of Jesus, can we be like the Magi who just doggedly followed that star? They fixed their sights on what would lead them to the one they were looking for. The other day I picked up a book. I was in the airport, I was stuck between flights, and I picked up this book. It's called Finding Your Own North Star, Claiming the Life You Were Meant to Live. It's written by Martha Beck. I was already thinking about magis and stars, so this book made me curious. And of course, explorers depend on the North Star, or I don't know, do they still with GPS and satellites? But anyway, in the ancient world, they depend on the North Star because if you have no other landmarks in the Northern Hemisphere, you look to the North Star. The North Star is called the Polaris. It lines up with the North Pole, so it's like it's a fixed destination, and you can count on it, kind of like the Magi might have kept you know, the star in sight. But Martha Beck says each one of us has an internal North Star, so we each need to read our own internal compass, and that will help us realize and achieve the happiness through a perfect life found within, and she calls that our own North Star calling. She claims each person's North Star is wholesome, it's good, and it will benefit ourselves, it will benefit others. And finally, she says it's okay for your North Star to change from time to time. It's whatever you decide is right for you. So let that guide you. Well, that sounds appealing. And really, Martha's teaching is widely popular. But I had to ask myself, finding my own North Star within? Like, that's a frightening proposition. Like, I decide what's true and good? How do I do that without my own selfishness or my own fear or my own need for comfort or the culture around just influencing me and skewing my own North Star? And I can think of plenty of others in history 
whose North Stars were anything but wholesome, good, and beneficial. Furthermore, permitting my internal North Star to change at my whim and desire, I mean, I'd be knocked off course every other week following any set of taillights down the freeway. But this is the number one way that we're told to discover what's true. You decide, look within yourself. It's your journey. You decide what to keep, you decide what to toss. You're your own North Star. And this is becoming a mainstream idea for Christians too. And I'm experiencing that it's so for Christians of all ages, not just the young. This is the number one way we're being told to discover what's true. Look within. Yet the Magi follow the light revealed to them in creation, not within, searching for evidence. This large and wealthy caravan of wise men and animals and goods would not have gone unnoticed as they made their way into the city of Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king? So Herod hears about it and it and the scripture says that he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Well, disturbed actually, it means they were thrown into turmoil. They were frightened. And why would the city have been frightened? Because Herod the Great at the time did not have a legitimate claim to the throne. He had been put in power by Rome and given the title King of the Jews, but he wasn't even Jewish. And at this time in his reign, near the end of his life, he was a paranoid and cruel ruler who had put to death many members of his own family. So Herod begins to spin his own evil deception. He calls together all the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and he tries to find out where this Messiah is to be born. They know. They say in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The religious leaders are quoting the prophet Micah, who wrote that prophecy 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus. They knew exactly where the Messiah would be born, but they don't investigate the truth. It doesn't even move them, not even five miles down the road to Bethlehem. See, nothing about this strange story of a star, this appearance of these foreigners, magi, looking for a baby, nothing fit their paradigm. They were looking for an earthly political kingdom, a ruler like King David. They were not looking for the truth that could be found right in front of them. Herod, on the other hand, took the magi seriously. And he sends them to Bethlehem under the pretense that he too wants to worship. But as we'll see, and as the story unfolds, we know it's a lie. Only one king can be king. Only one king can sit on the throne. Herod is outraged. He's threatened. This, this group of magi coming to find a newborn king of the Jews means his rule and his reign is finished. Pastor Tim Keller has such an insightful, he's a, he's a pastor from New York City who has written lots. He's a really brilliant mind. He is, has a, a really great chapter in his book called Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ. He says this, if you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he's the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. 
Where is this king, the one born king of the Jews? The Magi knew he was not to be found in a palace. Keller goes on to say that the notion of unconditional loyalty, Jesus as ultimate king, it triggers this deep resistance in the human heart. No one's going to tell me what to do. And in essence, every human heart, in every human heart, there's, there's like a little King Herod who wants to sit on the throne, who wants to rule, who wants to call the shots. And that's challenging. Where is this king? Disturbing question. I think we daily fight that tendency to want to be on the throne in our own lives, don't we? Whether we want to win the argument and have the last word, feel justified in our anger, Maybe we want to live our own sexual ethic because our bodies are our own, we're told. Maybe just even holding tightly to our resources because that brings us security and protection. We measure our time as our own and we resent intrusions or demands. We refuse to forgive. We justify our choices. All these are ways that, you know, our self is put on the throne. Keller makes this point. We have to face our own natural hostility to the lordship of the true king. And to do that, we've got to step out of denial and look honestly at ourselves. Are you unsure even about the story of Christmas? About the truth of Christianity? The truth claims that Jesus makes the authority of scripture in your life? Where might that actually come from? Again, Tim Keller uh, quotes Thomas Nigel. He's a philosopher and atheist. And this, this uh, Nigel is refreshingly candid about his feelings. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally, I hope I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. Now, most people that I talk to or maybe you would encounter don't, complain, don't claim to be an atheist like Nigel. The most common phrase I hear when I'm with people who are wrestling with their faith is, but I believe in God. I still believe in God. And that's, that's encouraging to me. That, that makes me glad. I'm glad we can have that conversation. But sometimes I wonder, is the God there seeking the one they want him to be, not the one that he actually reveals himself to be in Jesus and in his word? So when there's this clash between what we think or feel should be right or true and the claims of God in our lives, we create a God of our own. Do we just create a God of our own? own liking that fits our sensibilities, or will we seek the true king? Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That prophecy was given to a people in exile, a people who could have looked at the culture around them and said, I, I, I think I'll just go with the flow. But here, Jeremiah is speaking the words of God saying, no, you seek me, you will find me, even though you may not fit in with the culture around you or may not 
um, have the same values. Seek me. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Well, that's an understatement, that little word overjoyed. Actually, it means rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's a superlative. They were surprised by joy. And that's the name of a book I read this past year. It's the autobiography story of the conversion of C.S. Lewis. And Lewis lists in that book all the things that he says actually attacked and undermined the foundations of his unbelief. And those things were creation, beauty in nature, and in art. And then these sudden, unexpected moments of joy that he couldn't explain, and encounters with others, people on the journey. It sounds like the Magi, exactly what they experienced. They were surprised by joy, exceedingly great joy. C.S. Lewis says, all joy reminds, it's never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. I love that. See, God was continuing to draw the Magi supernaturally, leading them to find the Christ child. Stars don't move. Stars don't rest over a house. The Magi knew that they were being led by God, that God's heart of love was for them, leading them to something that they needed to discover. We won't truly seek him unless our hearts are really supernaturally changed to want to seek him. And that's what God does because he loves us so much. So the Magi's joy came from knowing that God was there. He was still revealing himself in creation, in these prophecies. How's your joy meter this morning? It's the advent of joy. But I know that Christmas can sometimes feel like a joy sucker, right? It just is something that, you know, some of us just power through. (laughs) I don't know. What if we ask God to supernaturally change our hearts, our desires? What if we asked him, God, reveal yourself to me this Christmas in creation, in your word. Maybe as we look at the mountains covered with snow or the beauty around us, maybe when we hear the familiar carols that are actually steeped in scripture and the beauty of the music, God, can you reveal yourself to me? Maybe pray for your own epiphany this Christmas, your own epiphany of joy. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They followed the star. They followed the scriptures, and it led them to Jesus. Because finally, complete revelation is only found in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. He's God's final word. And the only response that they had was what? fall down. And in the ancient practice, they would have literally knelt down and touched their foreheads to the floor in honor, recognition, surrender to this newborn king, this Messiah, recognizing that he had the authority to reign. Their search for truth had a destination, and it was found in the person of Jesus. And partly why this story is included in Matthew's gospel, is that God wants us to see. He sends these wise men, these 
foreigners from a far-off land, these magi, straight into the birth story. And that will be an unfolding theme through the Gospels, that God calls everyone. God draws everyone to himself. The Messiah came for the world. And it doesn't matter what your culture or your background, your ethnicity, your issues, your past. Jesus was born for you and for me. We need to see that too in this story. Where is this king, the one born king of the Jews? That title, King of the Jews, it reappears at the end of Matthew's gospel again, when another ruler installed by Rome named Pontius Pilate sentenced Jesus to death. In Matthew 27, it says, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then soldiers press a crown of thorns on his head, not of rubies or gold. And in mockery, they use that name, King of the Jews, to beat and humiliate Jesus. And instead of a throne, he's led to a cross. Instead of a bright star, darkness descends on the whole land when Jesus took on the sins of the world. But that's not the final word. Jesus rose from the dead in great glory, in power, and he defeats sin and death once and for all. And today we're going to take communion. And we're going to celebrate and remember Jesus coming as king, as Messiah, as savior for you and me. Not once, but twice. Because in taking the bread and the cup, Christians all around the world are announcing his return as king. 1 Corinthians makes it so clear. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So from now till he comes again as king, we are proclaiming what he has done for us. The king's coming again, and at that time, Earthly kings, people far and near, you, me, we will recognize his kingship. The Bible says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, not just the magi, but every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. And we get to do that today. So let's take the bread and the cup. And as we do, let's consider that Jesus' kingdom actually begins here. It actually begins in our own hearts. And it's here that Jesus wants to rule and reign. He gave his life for you. And the cross is this amazing display of mercy and love where we are rescued from death and from ourselves, just like you heard in Clara's story. So as we take the bread and the cup, we bow our knee to this king and we thank him for what he's done. So we're going to take a moment of silence to welcome Jesus right now. And maybe as we take communion you will be asking God to reveal himself to you, to open your heart, to want to seek him and find him. 
Whatever your journey of faith or doubt is, he's on the journey with you. Jesus said, when you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart. Let's just take a moment to talk to Jesus. Jesus.